The origin of the universe, the nature of everything we know, the meaning of space and time, and an equation to make sense of everything. These were the enormous preoccupation of Albert Einstein and his genius mind. By the time he died, he'd helped humankind understand some of the most complex concepts in physics. But his brain ended up in a glass jar of formalin on a shelf, and the man who possessed it sliced off pieces of the most famous brain of all time for anyone who wanted some. Blind history. We're in season two, and we're talking about a bunch of people. Um, some of them are leaders, some of them are kings, some of them are warriors, but some of them are just brilliant minds. And there can't be a more brilliant mind than the guy we're about to talk about now. In fact, when people go, you're a genius, they sometimes say, oh, you're an Einstein. That's how much of an effect he had on the 20th century and, and physics in the 20th century. But he's probably the smartest guy in recent living memory, right? I think the greatest mind of his time. For sure. And he was a big fan of Isaac Newton, who came before him. But he then went on to challenge Isaac Newton. He grew up in very humble beginnings, and his parents didn't actually expect much of him. They didn't really, and they were Jewish, but they weren't practicing Jews, so there was no yeah. pressure on religion. His dad was a sales guy and also involved in electric motors, mm. and he did very well in the early years. And uh, he fell on hard times because the, the innovation was so fast and turning so much that he actually wasn't going on the right path. So that changed everything actually for, for Albert Einstein because they moved down to Italy and they left him there. Well, he ran away from school. Correct. That's when that happened, yes. Um, of course, this all happening in Germany where, where he would eventually go back and then eventually renounce his citizenship. But at this stage of the story, so young Albert Einstein is the least promising of their children. I think they had a nickname for him, Der Depperter which is the dopey one. Correct. And he didn't actually speak until he was three. He was the dopey one? Yeah. <laughs> God help us. The rest of the family had ever gone and, and studied physics. We might have solved all the world's problems. So he ran away from school, wasn't a good student, joined his family in Italy again. But I think uh, just to point that from a student perspective, he didn't even have to really listen in class because he was so bright. But he was quite hectic to his teachers. He didn't show respect. He ignored them. And later on, they would come and bite him because he couldn't find a job for nine years later on because none of the professors wanted to hire him. But that was what he was like. He was, he was actually quite a difficult person to teach. Yeah, I, th I think his happiest years were probably when he was studying at Zurich University. And he was able to kind of explore some of these areas in, in physics and chemistry that he was interested in. But he wasn't, again, he wasn't the top of the class you know even in the end of high school his results were pretty ordinary and i don't think anyone would have guessed at that stage that this would become the greatest theoretical physicist of the 1900s when he finished that he took up a very boring job as a patent clerk in switzerland he was just filing these really dull papers all the time and had no fun in his life at all he had at that stage met a, a woman called mileva who he'd fallen in love with but they had a very weird relationship, which we can get into in a minute. Either way, this boring job gave him a chance to ask himself questions about space and time and how things work. And there was a big clock tower in the town, and he would sit and imagine, he would do thought experiments, as he called them, what would happen to the clock if you traveled away from it at the speed of light. 
the kinds of things that only really brilliant people think about. And he started filing papers then with the major scientific journals. And for a long time, there was no reply. And he was very downcast and, and miserable and depressed about it. And, you know, his marriage wasn't exactly fantastic either. I think he liked her because she was also a physicist. She was the only woman studying physics. Correct, Serbian physicist, yeah. Mm. So it stimulated his mind. And there's a rumor that they had a daughter and that they may have either given her up for adoption or she might have died of scarlet fever when she was very young. But it didn't sound like things were totally kosher there for a long time. She did eventually produce two sons for him, one of whom was very depressed and uh, I think he might even have been permanently in an asylum after his mother died. But that whole situation unraveled later on when he moved back to Germany. But if we have to look just a little bit back to when he was at school, just briefly, he always shot lights out on sciences and maths. So he was always top of the class. So that's often not true what they say. First of all, he didn't want to be in the conscription because the Germans were now... Um, that, that's what they were doing And he was a pacifist So that's why he ran away One of the reasons he ran away um, To Italy To where his parents were But also he had the thought of mind To get a letter of recommendation From his maths and science teacher Which he used to actually get into The institution in Switzerland And that actually got him in He didn't really care about the other subjects And that's where he might have not done well such as languages and those type of things. But the sciences, he was absolutely ready from an early age. They could see to write a letter of recommendation. They, you could actually see that this guy had something seriously special. I think the most interesting story I heard about that period of his life was when he was, he was friends with a lot of these other brilliant scientists, right? So he, he stayed with Fritz Haber in Germany when he was there. He was the guy who developed the Haber process and eventually chlorine gas, which was used in World War I. And they didn't see eye to eye on that. And Fritz Haber's life was a, was a mess after that as well because it was weaponized, you know. He weaponized mm. his chemistry. But he was good friends eventually with Max Planck, mm. who he'd sent one of his articles to. Which we're still studying the Planck theory today, correct? Absolutely. And Max Planck had a very, very powerful reputation in Germany in the sciences. And actually Kaiser Wilhelm II, who started World War I effectively, or certainly fought against the Allies during World War I as the main protagonist, he asked Max Planck to set up an institute in Berlin and to recruit the best scientists he could find to work in the pre-war effort and then during the war as well. And this was a big break for Einstein. He was asked to go there by Max Planck. By that stage, he had already won a Nobel Prize, or he was on his way to winning a Nobel Prize for one of the three papers he'd already written. But funny um, enough, not the theory of relativity. So no. he was quite upset about that. He was, and he would eventually get recognition for it. But I think he got it for protons or something like it, that. It was, it was to do with atomic theory. And, I mean, we are not in a position to get into the kinds of <laughs> yes, stuff that he was writing there. That. I think we'll hurt yeah. ourselves <laughs> if yeah. we start. But either way, he eventually said to Max Planck, and it's quite a cute story, he said, I'm going to go home and think about it. When I come back to Berlin, if I'm carrying red flowers, it means I've accepted the job. If I'm carrying white flowers, it means I've changed my mind. I want to go back to Switzerland instead. And you had these two, I think Max Planck and one other guy, were standing at the railway station hoping that Einstein, who'd by then become quite famous for some of his published papers, they were waiting for this guy to get off the train to see what color the flowers were. And he walked up with the red flowers and said, I'll take the job. 
and did some really interesting work in Berlin for that time. But he was, as you say, a pacifist. And increasingly, as it became obvious that Germany was going to war, that he would be roped into this, he became less and less interested in what they were doing Mm. for Kaiser Wilhelm Mm. and kind of reclusively went into his study. And he did a lot of really important work during that time. And some of it eventually would lead to, you know, prizes and recognition for him. But his marriage had broken down as well. Talking about the white flowers and the red flowers, that was a driving point for him to go to Berlin, actually. Yeah. Because um, the flowers weren't actually for Max at all. They were were for his cousin, Elsa. Exactly. So he took his wife across there and then he unceremoniously, it was quite hard in the way he, he approached it. He basically said, you'll still be my wife, but you'll have certain duties and we won't live together. And so she accepted it. And then in the end, certain duties, he said, you will make this meal and that meal for me when you see me. This is what I want. You'll keep the children quiet while I'm studying. I mean, it was like Mm. it was was was, hardcore. Yeah, it was very hardcore stuff. And he had fallen in love with his cousin Mm. and he promised Mileva as part of the settlement. He said, if you divorce me, you can have the money from my first Nobel Prize that I get. And she didn't know whether he would win a Nobel Prize or not. And he didn't know, frankly, but he was that confident. Mm. And when he did win his first Nobel Prize, he did give her the money. What made him such an interesting person was he was charismatic. He would flirt a lot Mm. with women. And also, he was not only just a scientist, he was a philosopher. And, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, you don't talk science and religion. But he had some very strong opinions on religion. Okay, yes, when he was at a Catholic school when he was young, he became religious, but he saw, obviously, the more he understood science, less as such. But he always believed in a higher power. He always believed that nature works in a certain way, Mm. and it's structured in a certain way. And people called him an atheist. He was never an atheist. He he called Um, himself an agnostic. He certainly said there's no such thing as a personal God, but his views on religion are controversial now because people interpret them whichever way they want to. He used to say things like, he'd say, God does not play dice. And by that, he means that there are structures and and equations and formulae that make the universe what it is. Mm. And that those things, he was keen to understand the mind of God. But he didn't mean the kind of God that has a problem with you wearing these kinds of underpants. You know, he was more interested in (laughs) the laws of the universe, the laws of physics. And certainly he saw patterns which he thought were probably not coincidental. And that's what he was working towards when he died for the rest of his life, basically, was to try to work out the universal theory of everything. Exactly. And he died actually doing it. The notebook was next to his bed when he finally passed away. But from a religious perspective, what was very important to him was he said, we don't want the human being to be good in fear of being punished. We want a human being to be good because they are good or want to be good. Yeah, I think a lot of people, because he was so brilliant, expected him to also speak about everything. And there were a couple of things that he was driven by. He loved music. He could play the violin very well. He was also a Zionist. He believed that the Jewish people needed a homeland. And he was offered the presidency of Israel. Three years before his death, yeah. That's right. He said, look, you know, with all the love in the world, I'm a humble scientist. I can't do it. Which in some ways tells you that there was real humility there. But because he was brilliant, they expected him to know everything about everything. Mm. He was also a very strong campaigner in the days when it wasn't fashionable to be a campaigner against racism. He all thought, inequalities. For that all matter. inequality. Yeah. He thought that America was still very racist and backward and not necessarily 
where they should be in terms of progressive ideas. And also on the gay side in Europe, he was very strong on the equality on the gay side. So he, he did a lot. And for his time, he delivered way more than people would have expected. I mean, his scientific theories were brilliant. He, he actually corrected his special theories of relativity. They were going to, during a solar eclipse, measure whether the light bent around the sun effectively. And because of World War I starting, his experiments were never conducted. And after that, they were all upset that the experiments couldn't be done because it wouldn't be able to prove him right. And eventually they discovered that if those experiments had been done, they wouldn't have proven what he wanted. And he had to adapt his theory, despite not having the evidence of the experiments, and found that he had been in some areas wrong and corrected those things about how, for example, things don't bend around. It's got to do with space and time. It's got to do with the fact that gravity is not a a pull, but it's a push. And there are all sorts of things that he added to theoretical physics, which up to then were considered crazy. And these were the seminal ideas that made it possible for us to eventually build the atomic bomb and power up nuclear reactors and, and figure out what happens in the universe, what large bodies in the universe are doing. So to that point, in 1905, when he produced five papers, of which the theory of relativity was one of them, the scientific community didn't accept it. I mean, they they thought, who's this upstart? We don't believe it. And it was only in 1920 that they started, wow, Hmm. this is incredible and what he's done and what he's achieved. But funny enough, late in life, he became that person. He became the old school. And he was quite stubborn because he was working towards the universal theory of relativity till the day he died. And whatever people were saying or mentioning, he said, no, that's not what it is. But he was also very honest in what he And quite eccentric. Saying. I mean, like when we think of a mad genius now, we think of like Einstein hair and, mm. you know, it's kind of the way that p- people portray a scientist. And he was a bit eccentric. Like we said, he used to play his violin. A lot of his ideas Correct. came when he was either playing the violin or sleeping. And I, I believe he used to sleep 10 hours a night. Or a day, which is a lot. Which we need to learn from that, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sleeping near that, but I'm no genius. And it was quite weird. Like He didn't really have great family relations. And he had lots of friends in the scientific community. He was friends with Sigmund Freud, among others. Charlie Chaplin said something interesting about him, and you mentioned his fame just a minute ago. Chaplin said, the people applaud me because everybody understands me. They applaud you because no one understands you. He knew exactly who he was. He he liked his quiet time. He was a loner, but he also he loved the limelight and he loved being with people. So he just, whenever it suited him, he would do whatever he felt. He loved going for walks. And I think that's a big part of his creativity. From a young age, he used to walk into the mountains in Germany and in Switzerland later on. And then as we hear, even in Princeton, he walked. Yeah, he used to walk to and from um, Princeton every day. He would smoke his pipe the whole time, so the students knew it was him because they'd see the cloud of smoke. They honored him. The smoking society honored him, and he said, smoking brings you know, a clearer thought do you know to calmness. Else, do you know who else honored him? It was the Plumbers Association, because he said he really admired plumbing. Oh, okay. He, he admired plumbers. He thought plumbers were good people who did good work, and he became the honorary president of the Plumbing Association. Okay. Or something. Yeah. And then also, strangely, he never wore socks. Oh. Even in the middle of winter, he never wore socks. <laughs> So he was very strange. Guy. Yeah, so he had he had a lot of quirky habits, but the atomic bomb was released. That really killed him. It took a long time. I don't know if he ever did get over it. He did say his biggest mistake was writing that letter to President Roosevelt Correct. and saying we we need to 
arm up against the the Nazis and build this atom bomb faster than them. But I think you know history has proven he was probably right. And he actually did mention it. If he knew that Germany wasn't going to build an atomic bomb, he would have kept quiet. Just to reflect on that World War II period, he did something interesting too, which I don't think a lot of people know about. He actually found work for all the Jewish German scientists in England and in Turkey, funnily enough, during the time when they were you know, they were starting to ratchet up the anti-Semitism there. And he managed to save over a thousand Jewish scientists. The world would have never known about their work Mm. if he hadn't personally got involved and petitioned. Like he was quite close to the Belgian royal family. And that's how he actually got hold of President Roosevelt eventually about how we need to scale up this bomb initiative. But um, his brain has an interesting history of its own because after he died, they performed an autopsy, and the doctor, I think his name was Harvey, who, who performed the autopsy, actually took out Einstein's brain, put it in a jar, and used to cut pieces off and give them to other scientists to study, to see if they could figure out whether Einstein's brain was different to any other person's brain. They determined in the end there were more glial cells, and he had slightly more synaptic activity in certain parts of the brain, but that essentially a brain's a brain, and it was more that this guy was just really connected to what was going on. He had a great imagination. He was so curious. And he was just such a dynamic and with different facets in his in his character. So he was helping the Jewish scientists. Uh, there was actually a bounty on his head from Nazi Germany. Hmm. And they confiscated his house and all his money. Well, Hitler turned his house into a Nazi youth camp. A Hitler youth camp and they confiscated his sailboat, which Einstein was really pissed off about. Yeah. He did not like that at all. Because he, he didn't like sail. the Nazis yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, he really yeah, didn't yeah. like them after they took his sailboat. But he couldn't swim. Yeah. He, so he didn't he would sail, but he couldn't swim. And he would often turn upside down. When he's in Princeton, he would be sailing out at sea and they always had to rescue him because he, because <laughs> he wasn't a great sailor, but he loved sailing and he couldn't swim at all. So those were the challenges. Wow. And then, there always has to be our dear, dear friend that we hear in so many different stories. J. Edgar Hoover was investigating him. Well, they kept files. I yeah. think they eventually had like a thousand files on Einstein because he was buddy-buddy with the socialists and then he was talking to the pacifists. Yeah, and, he was a communist. And J. Communist. Edgar Hoover kept an eye on everybody. He did. 100%. We're going to do an episode on him one day. Well, there he is. Einstein, a genius, a person who contributed more to to modern physics and our understanding of how the universe works than almost anybody and uh, a bit of a nutcase as well thanks for listening to the award-winning blind history brought to you by taylor blinds and shutters